Airing in the 1960s and 1970s, The Dating Game was a popular show about singles finding romance. Usually, there'd be a young woman who would be on one side of a partition, asking a series of quirky and often sexually suggestive questions of a trio of bachelors on the other side of it. Without seeing them and not being able to allow to ask their names, occupation, ages, or incomes, she would think over their answers during a commercial break and then select one of the three men for a date. Occasionally, the roles were reversed and a man would do the selecting from a group of three bachelorettes. The dating game was hosted by Jim Lang and became every, and who began every episode by stepping through a flowered, speckled partition that suggested the flower power that would become a cliche in that hippie era. In 1978, a program aired in which Lang introduced Bachelor Number One as a, quote, successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed, end quote. Lang paused while the audience laughed appreciatively at the double entendre. Then the host continued, between takes you may find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. The audience saw Bachelor Number One, a handsome, dark-haired young man with a ready smile. Introducing the woman who would pick the date, Lang said, here's a young lady with a wealth of experience. She once earned a living massaging feet but quit when her boss suggested she work her way up. Again, Lang paused while the audience laughed at the innuendo. Lang continued, then she taught school in Phoenix, Arizona, and now she's here to educate our three bachelors on the art of amour. Welcome sensational Cheryl Bradshaw. The bachelors were told to say hello to Cheryl. Bachelor number one said, we're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. The question period began with Bradshaw asking, Bachelor number one, what is your favorite time of the day? My favorite time is at night, the smiling Alcala answered, nighttime. When he was asked why, he raised his eyebrows suggestively and replied, because that's the only time there is. Well, what's wrong with morning or afternoon? Bradshaw pressed. Oh, well, they're all right, the contestant conceded, but nighttime is when it really gets good. Then you're really ready. At another point, Bradshaw said, Bachelor number one, I'm a drama teacher and I'm auditioning you for my private lessons. You're a dirty old man. Take it away. Come on over here, Alcala said and dramatically growled. The performance was a big hit with the audience that laughed and applauded. Cheryl then asked, Bachelor number one, I'm serving you for dinner. What are you called and what do you look like? I'm called the banana and I look really good, Alcala replied. Could you be a little bit more descriptive, Cheryl asked. Peel me, Alcala said with a laugh. The witty reply brought another wave of applause from the audience. When Lang asked Bradshaw to decide which bachelor she wanted to date, she said, I like bananas, so I'll take one. However, the date actually never took place. All sources agreed that after Bradshaw talked more extensively to Alcala backstage, she found him creepy and refused to go on the date. It may well have been the wisest decision of Cheryl Bradshaw's life. Because at the time that Rodney Alcala appeared on the dating game, he was already a convicted child rapist and a registered sex offender. And although authorities were not yet aware of it, he had also murdered at least two women and possibly others. You are now listening to Murder V. Wrote. 
I'm your host, V. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to give a disclaimer and a warning. Today's topic may include discussions of rape, child rape, molestation, murder, and other things that may be unsuitable for young listeners. I don't recommend this show for listeners under 13, and please, as always, use your best judgment when listening. And now that we have that out the way, let's talk about Rodney Alcala. Rodney James Alcala was born on August 23, 1943, in San Antonio, Texas. Published sources don't really tell us a lot about Rodney's childhood, but it is known that his family moved to a suburb of Los Angeles when he was a baby and that he pretty much spent his life being raised there. Um, Alcala's father was out of the picture because he deserted the family when he was 12. So when he's a bit older... Uh, Rodney enlists in the Army in 1961, and he serves as a clerk. The Orange County Register article reports that in 1964, three years after his enlistment, he claimed that he suffered a nervous breakdown, and a military psychiatrist examined him and diagnosed him as having an antisocial personality, chronic severe. He was discharged from the service. It was four years after leaving the Army in 1968 that Rodney Alcala committed his first known crime. He spotted an an eight-year-old girl who is referred to as Tally in official documents, but we now know after the fact that this is Tally Shapiro. Um, She was on her way to school um, in Hollywood, California, and she's walking by herself, and Rodney lures her into his car. Um, It just so happens that a good Samaritan actually sees this and thinks it's a bit strange. So once he gets Talia into the car, he drives away with her, and he doesn't take Talia to school, obviously. He takes her to to his apartment, where he struck her in the head with a pipe and then strangled her. But this driver and Good Samaritan that saw Alcala get Tally Shapiro into his car drove after Alcala and follows him to his apartment and then phoned the police when he was outside. According to an article by uh, by Christine Pellisk in the LA Weekly, LAPD officers soon knocked on the door and were greeted at the window by a shirtless Alcala who told them he'd be right with them. Instead, he escaped through a back door. So what happened here is basically the cops do show up on this Good Samaritan's tip. They come to the front door and knock. Rodney puts this ruse on in which he basically does like peek his head out the door. He basically goes to the bathroom, splashes some water on himself, wets his hair and wraps a towel around himself to make it appear that he's just gotten out of the shower. So then he buys himself a little time. So he tells him, give him just a second. He'll go put on some clothes and he'll answer the door. So when he doesn't come back and runs through the back door, the police go through the front door and they find Tally Shapiro bloodied by this from being bludgeoned by this pipe and she's laying on the floor. And what Rodney Alcala has done 
is he has a weight set, like with a bench in his apartment. He has put a weight on the child's neck in order to suffocate her to death. The police come in and they think that Talia Shapiro is dead and they are trying to figure out if it's worth it to try to render aid to her or keep running after Rodney Alcala. All of a sudden, Talia starts to gurgle and make noises and the police realize that she's still very much alive. They remove the weight from her neck and get her rushed to the hospital and Talia Shapiro makes a full recovery. But because the cops because they wanted to save this little eight-year-old girl's life, nobody ran after Rodney Alcala, and he ran out of the back door of that Hollywood apartment and into being a fugitive. So where does Alcala go next? He heads to California, well, leads, leaves California, and heads to New York City. And it's here that he assumes a new name, John Berger, and he enrolls in New York University. Um, it's there that he studies filmmaking under the distinguished director and accused child rapist Roman Polanski, who you may also know because his wife and her friends were brutally murdered in the Tate LaBianca murders in 1969, and who would eventually become a fugitive in France because of the child molestation charges that we, or statutory rape conviction that I just mentioned. In 1971, um, California police detective Steve Hodel persuaded the FBI to put the fugitive child rapist Alcala on its 10 most wanted list. So at this point in 1971, he is a wanted man. He's going by John Berger and he's just kind of living his life in New York. And until he's put on the FBI most wanted list, nobody is really calling any tips like nobody's able to find him. So once he's on the 10 most wanted list, two teen girls in New Hampshire duck into a post office to wait out a rainstorm and they see his photograph on the 10 most wanted poster. The teens recognized Rodney Alcala, get this, as the face of a man that they knew as John Berger, who worked at a, as a counselor at their arts and drama summer camp. The girls informed the camp's dean, who then notified the authorities. So August 12th, 1971, Alcala is arrested and brought back to Los Angeles to face rape and attempted murder charges for what he had done to Talia Shapiro. He was convicted, but only served two years and 10 months in prison for the vicious attack on Talia. And when we look at why his imprisonment was so brief for the beating and rape of a child, well, we go back to the article that Christine Pellis wrote for the LA Weekly. And she explains that California state government in that era, in the early 70s, had embraced a philosophy that the state could successfully treat rapists and murderers through education and psychotherapy. The hallmark of this philosophy was indeterminate sentencing. And what that means is that judges left open the number of prison years that could be served by a violent felon, and then parole boards would later determine when or if that that offender had been reformed. Then Governor Jerry Brown ended these, the idea of indeterminate sentencing, but Alcala had already been paroled when that system was terminated. So basically what this means is that now much of the law has kind of like a sliding scale for what you can be sentenced to usually for certain levels of crimes. Obviously the punishment has to fit the crime. It's the way we've all been explained it. So in this, it's so in this indeterminate sentencing, 
it's not that the punishment fits the crime. It's that the punishment is open-ended and leaves room for possible reform. So the idea here is that, yes, you have done something horrible, but we're going to let the judge decide you know, how long you should do. And then when you're up for parole, as long as you've been a great prisoner, we'll let you out because you've done the work with psychotherapy and rehabilitation to be walking out amongst us, even if you are a rapist and an attempted murderer of a second grader, which obviously wouldn't fly now, but I will say, obviously it was the seventies and well, the way that they treated rape and obviously even the rape of an eight-year-old is, is very different than the way we see things now. It doesn't excuse it, but this just kind of gives you an idea of how Rodney Alcala was able to walk out among us and commit other murders after trying to rape and then murder a little girl by suffocating her with a weight bar. Two months after Rodney Alcala was paroled in 1974, police found Alcala at the Bolsa Chica State Beach with a 13-year-old girl called Julie J. in the press because, again, these are going to be aliases, aliases for these underage girls um, because that is the way they are prevented. They are presented to us in the court documents for the sake of laws concer concerning. Um, crimes done against minors for their own privacy and um, safety. So I don't, the reason that I know Talia Shapiro's name is because she has done numerous interviews after the fact as a grown adult. And that is how we know who she is. Um, I will also point this out, and I should have said this earlier. Another reason that Rodney Alcala also got off so early for the attempted murder and the rape of Talia Shapiro is because her parents, after this happened, felt so horrible and so traumatized by living in California, they actually quit their jobs, packed up their family and moved to Mexico. And so when it came time for the trial to start, they actually refused to bring Talia back to California so that she could testify in the trial. So back to Julie J. So she tells authorities, this 13-year-old, that Rodney Alcala had kidnapped her, but he was convinced that only he was convicted of only violating parole and supplying marijuana to a minor. He served an additional two years in prison before again being paroled. Shortly after his his release, Rodney's parole officer in Los Angeles permitted him, even though he's a registered child rapist at this point and a known flight risk, to go to New York to visit relatives. So when he returns to California, he acquires a job as a typesetter for the Los Angeles Times in 1977. He worked under his real name, so his employers could have easily been aware of his criminal history. However, they may have regarded it as irrelevant to the job he held since it didn't involve contact with children. Um, so we'll get into the psychology of, of rapists which we have talked about before but especially a discussion of kind of child rapists and that idea of pedophilia in our next segment but we're not going to talk about it just yet so Rodney's working as a typesetter, and during the time that he worked at the Los Angeles Times, the newspaper was frequently filled with articles of a series of murders attributed to a serial murder dubbed the Hillside Strangler, Strangler because the corpses of females raped and killed were often left in hilly areas. The Hillside Strangler would eventually be discovered to actually be two people, cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angela Warner. But 
I bring that up because when the police were working this case in 1977 and trying to find who out find out who Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono are, Rodney Alcala was actually questioned by police regarding those murders, but he act, but he actually didn't commit any of those murders. In December of 1977, at a request of the FBI, uh, authorities questioned Alcala about a woman who had disappeared in New York City at a time that Alcala had been there on a trip to visit relatives that had been approved by his parole officer. The woman was Ellen Hoover, who was a talented pianist and socialite. She's actually the daughter of Herman Hoover, who owned the famous Ciro nightclub and was close friends with Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. After she vanished, the police were searching in Ellen's home and found the name John Berger written in her planner. According to detectives who questioned Alcala about Ellen Hoover, they were acting on a tip from a New Directions drama cap counselor in New Hampshire who told detectives seeking a John Berger that in 1971, the camp counselor of that name had been arrested and taken away by police. So this lines up with, with what we know to be true about Rodney Alcala. He was in the New York State, New Hampshire area. He did have access to Ellen Hoover, and it is, is quite possible that he was the one that murdered her as he had she had an appointment set with him. Alcala admitted to the police that he had known Ellen Hoover, but denied having anything to do with her disappearance and lacking a body or any concrete evidence as to what happened to the missing woman, police couldn't hold Alcala. A few months later, on March 22, 1978, the officers from the Hillside Strangler Task Force then questioned him in connection to those murders. They ruled him out as the Hillside Strangler, but sent him to jail for a brief time because of the marijuana they discovered in his possession. So it's shortly after this in 1978 that the appearance that we discussed at the top of the show happened on the dating game. Criminal profiler Pat Brown commented on the appearance saying that serial killers are tremendous actors. Serial killers are predators and they act like an animal trying to get its prey. The rest of the time, they simply try to blend in, end quote. Jed Mills, who appeared as Bachelor number two on the infamous Dating Game episode, recalled conversations in the back room, in the back, in backstage, in the green room with Alcala. Mills said he was quiet, but at the same time, he would interrupt and impose when he felt like it. And he was very obnoxious and creepy. He became very unlikable and rude and imposing as though he was trying to intimidate. I wound up not only liking the guy, not wanting to be near him, he got creepier and more negative. He was a standout creepy guy, in my opinion. Now, keep in mind that as we have talked about both Cheryl Bradshaw, the Bachelorette's impression, and Bachelor Number Two's impression, Jed Mills, they both use the word creepy to describe Alcala. Brown thinks it's significant that Alcala appeared personable on the program, but gave the opposite impression to Jed Mills backstage. She observes, he is showing his psychopathic personality in the green room. He wasn't acting at that time. Those are his enemies, and he had to beat them to get the girl he wanted to win. This guy probably literally hated them. This guy was going on the show to prove how special and wonderful he was, and his ego was riding on it. After his dating game appearance, Rodney kind of does the things that sometimes serial killers do. He took a break. He lived regular life, but not for long. Um, 
So early in 1979, a few months after the dating game appearance, a distraught 12-year-old girl called police from a motel in Riverside County. She said that she had been hitchhiking and had just escaped from a kidnapper and rapist. Alcala was, was apprehended and the bail was set at $10,000 and Alcala's mother paid it. Five months later in 1979 is when Robin Samso disappears. She was the daughter of Marianne Connolly, a single mother of four children. A Los Angeles Times article relates that in 1977, the five of them shoved everything they owned in a U-Haul and headed from Wisconsin to California. Connolly moved the family to Huntington Beach, California. She chose Huntington Beach because it seemed like a good, clean town for raising children. Connolly said Robin never called her mother mom, but always by, always by the special nickname that the child had for her mother, Pretty Lady. The natural blonde told her red-haired mother that she, Robin, wanted hair the color of her mother's. Connolly would reply, but Robin, people spend tons of money to try to have hair like yours. And Robin would simply say, but Pretty Lady, I want to look like you. Robin was a ballerina and the star gymnast who dreamed of one day competing in the Olympics. Robin and her friend Bridget had been with, together earlier in the day of her disappearance. Both girls had been wearing swimsuits when a man approached them, and he told them he was a photographer and wanted to take their pictures. The man was being a little weird as there were two 12-year-old girls on the beach, and eventually a suspicious neighbor stopped by and asked him why he was bothering the girls, and he took off. Later that day, Bridget lent her yellow bicycle to Robin because she had to get to her ballet class and she never made it to the class and she never returned home. Police sketch artists sat with Bridget to try to describe the man who they'd seen on the beach earlier that day. A parole officer recognized the image of that of Rodney Alcala. As I talked about a little earlier in the show, typically, although Rodney Alcala did not just murder young children i have discussed rape as a whole on a different show when i talked about uh paul and carla homolka who were known as the ken and barbie killers i had a full discussion about the psychology of rapists on that particular episode so rather than revisit that same idea of rape in general today we're going to discuss the psychology of preying on children of pedophiles and why we are seeing kind of a rise in that and what is the emerging psychology of pedophiles. So I guess the question here and the reason that we're having this conversation, because this is one of the things that is really less understood, is particularly the issue that is underlying it all. What drives people to sexually abuse children? Well, the science in recent years has begun to provide some answers that probably weren't available during Rodney Alcala's time as a murderer. Um, but one thing that most people that are pedophiles particularly have in common, they discover usually as teenagers that their sexual preferences have not matured like everyone else's. So what happens is they get stuck on the same age boys and girls who first attracted them at the start of puberty, and then they sometimes also retain an interest in far younger children. Uh, people don't choose what arouses them. They discover it. And this is a quote from Dr. Fred Berlin, who is the director of John Hopkins Sex and Gender Clinic. Quote, no one grows up wanting to be a pedophile. So over the past generations, psychologists and forensic specialists have 
studied pedophilia, and it's a disorder that's characterized by, quote, recurrent, intense, arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors involving sexual activity with a prepubescent child, according to psychiatry's diagnostic manual. These, ex these experts have interviewed patients in depth, piecing together life histories and performing a variety of psychological and anatomical measures. And while no study offers a complete picture, a certain portrait is emerging, and it one that helps with the mental dynamic behind the surge in finding abuse images and deepening depravity they depict. These findings also defy common stereotypes about what pedophilia is and what risks are engaging in for psychological abuse. So what they find is that the majority of convicted offenders are men, and they usually prey on children between the ages of 6 to 17. Rough estimates put the rate of pedophilic attraction at between 1% to 4% in both men and women. Studies suggest that a small subset of male and female pedophiles have interest in toddlers or even infants, but I will mention that this is actually very, very uncommon. And as scientists seek to understand how the disorder develops, there's a growing consensus that the origin is largely biological. This view is based on part in studies pointing to subtle physical traits that have higher incidences among pedophiles. The biological clues attached to pedophilia demonstrate that its roots are prenatal in some ways, is what James Cantor, the director of the Toronto Sexuality Center, says. They're not genetic. They can be traced to specific periods of development in the womb, unquote. Again, this is one man's opinion, so don't take this as salt of the earth, the only type of research that has ever been done about this. His word is not law. I, again, am just giving you some opinions um, and some scientific research that I have read. So psychological environmental factors may also contribute, but it's also not yet clear what those are or how they interact with development. The vast majority of offenders deny any sex abuse in their childhood, even though they could garner sympathy in court by doing so. A, cha a chaotic childhood increases the likelihood of a chaotic adulthood in any crime. Um, so the common presumption that pedophiles were themselves abused as children now has less support because honestly, most of them are saying that they weren't. So the relationship between viewing and collecting images and committing hands-on abuse is a matter of continuing debate among experts um, and one that's critical to evaluating the risk an offender poses. Until recently, the prevailing view here was that only a minority of people caught viewing the images between maybe 5 and 20% also committed any type of physical abuse. But that perception began to change around 2007 when a pair of psychologists at the Federal Bureau of Prisons reported that 85% of convicted online offenders acknowledged in therapy that they had also raped or otherwise sexually abused children. So what that means is that typically we have thought that people watching or collect watching child porn or collecting images of child porn or abuse on their computers or looking at them through their phones or purchasing them from the dark web are doing this as an outlet for these unhealthy predilections they have, but they aren't physically acting on them, much in the way that we would look at a person who watches snuff films or really enjoys very gory, murdery type of media content or likes looking at crime scene photos, but is using that as an outlet and is not actually going to go 
commit a murder or someone that writes murder mysteries um, or online, you know, fan fiction, but is not going to go try to act out any of these fantasies. Well, it turns out that the, the jump from online watching and fantasizing collection of images is really a small hop because quite a few of them are actually offending in real life. And unfortunately, a lot of that is going undetected. The thing about this and what I want you to remember is that it's what we would refer to as a convenient sample. And that is legitimate critique of any type of study that you do, right? Um, so to keep this as simple as possible and not make it a conversation about statistical analyses or the way that we do studies. When you do a study for something, you have to have a group that you are studying. And so what you strive to do is create a sample, which is a, a, a subsection of the population, but you try to make it as diverse as possible so that it is a reflection of the whole group that you are trying to study. Obviously, you can't study everyone in the world but you can take a breakdown of race and and gender and other things to make sure that you get a pretty decent cross-section. The issue with the study done at the Federal Bureau of Prisons is that this isn't a good cross-section of the population. All of these people are convicted offenders that are in prison and all of them are men and all of them are there for the same thing. So it's not a great it's it's not a great sample. It is a convenient sample because it's the only one that was available to take because you would have a difficult time being able to interview people that are walking free who are not convicted of any type of sexual crime getting to sit down with you and tell you that they molest children and that they watch child porn online because they would be going to jail. So since then, other studies have supported the prison finding, but not at such a high number. And one, inspectors from an array of government agencies interviewed like 127 online offenders shortly after their arrest, and less than 5% admitted to previously molesting one child. When agents followed up in a more depth polygraph-assisted methods, another 53% admitted to hands-on offenses for a total nearly 60%. So not 85% with the convenient sample that we got, but 60 is still a pretty large number. And this wasn't a convenient sample. They were offenders, some of who had downloaded just a single image with no known history from all over the country, interviewed by people from different agencies. They had really no incentive to admit to previous offenses. What they are trying to do is learn what drives these visceral, often consuming sexual desires. And therapists say that it can't be shut off or replaced the way that heroin can be swapped out for methadone. Treatment can require drugs that reduce circulating testosterone and software that limits online browsing habits. And often therapy for this addresses substance abuse as well. Studies suggest that at least 40% of sex offenders were using drugs or alcohol when they committed their crimes. The important thing to take away from this is that people know that there's some type of treatment possible. There's a subgroup out there and they refer to themselves here that they're quite convinced that they do not want real life sex with children. So what we know of Rodney Alcala is that he actually wanted to have real life sex with children. And in order to cover up the fact that he was preying on these children, he was murdering. So it's interesting here, right? Because the question is what kind of depravity prison and prison reform and offenders 
Offenders of this kind of type where they commit rape is, and what you learn about this is as offenders get better at it, they have less incentive or if they've been caught, they don't want to get caught again. So what happens here is that you have a subset of people that have gone to jail for an offense, much like Rodney Alcala did, and you sit there because you have nothing else to do and you think about the mistakes that you made that got you caught. If they're saying that he's been rehabilitated in two years, usually what that means for people that are psychopaths and very smart is that they are able to turn on their charm, much like we saw in the dating game clips um, from his episode. And then when you are not turning it on, then those psychopathic traits shine through and it is off-putting and scary to other people when they notice it. But by masking this and acting normal and blending in, then you're able to gain the trust of people. But you're also able to do things like convince a parole board in two years that you should be out of prison, even though you're a child rapist and attempted murderer. He does a very good job of, of convincing people that he's not a threat to anyone when in reality he is. And once he is out of prison and sees that he's essentially gotten a slap on the wrist and can a wrist and can be charming and talk his way out of any real repercussions, then that is what he essentially begins to do. And what he also realizes is, is that the best way to stay out of jail is to make sure that I don't leave any witnesses. And how do we not leave any witnesses to our rapes? Well, we murdered. So now that we're done talking about pedophilia, we're going to dive back in and we are back with Bridget, who is giving the police sketch artist this pretty recognizable description um, of who they believe to be Rodney Alcala. Shortly after this, on July 2nd of 1979, the U.S. Forestry Service Rangers found skeletal human remains. They were identified as those of Robin Samso. Unbeknownst to them, another ranger had stumbled upon the remains several days later, but had not reported the grizzly find because she was so upset by it. Akala was, was arrested later on July 24th at his mother's home. He told authorities that he had been at Knott's Berry Farm at the time of Robin Samso's disappearance. He claimed that he had gone there to apply for a job taking photographs at a disco contest. In a search of Alcala's residence, officers discovered a receipt for a locker in Seattle. LAPD officers traveled there, and inside the locker, they found a pair of gold ball earrings, like those believed to have been worn by Robin Samso on the day that she disappeared. Also found were many other pairs of earrings and a wealth of photographs of women and teen girls. The locker's contents would turn out to be a treasure trove of evidence linking Alcala to the murders. So what we find out here about Rodney Alcala is that he is the type of serial killer who is not, who is a collector or as it is commonly known or normally described as he likes to keep trophies basically. So what happens is when he commits these rapes and murders, he takes something from the victim as a way to remember them and will not remember the person as if he knows them, but to relive the crime. He can look at a pair of earrings, like in Robin Samso's case, or these Polaroid pictures that he's taken or whatever he's keeping. And then he can go look at that and touch it and be in the moment and relive 
these crimes as a fantasy when he's not able to go commit other rapes and murders. And this is, is very typical for a lot of serial murderers to keep things like that, particularly ones that are rapists as well as murderers. So after Rodney is arrested in July of 1979, he pleads not guilty to the charges that he kidnapped, that he kidnapped, molested, and murdered Robin Samso. His only defense attorney was John Barnett. Barnett has described Alcala as a very polite and intelligent person, which again, as we talked about, most psychopaths are. That is a part of the psychopathy. I can't act like a serial killer and a murderer all the time if I'm going to blend in and get people to trust me enough to let down their guard so that I can be a rapist and murdering serial killer. Kind of a catch-22 there. So Deputy District Attorney John Farnell heads, heads up the prosecution team for this trial. Judge Philip E. Schwab presided over this trial. The prosecution presented the earrings that were found in the locker as physical evidence leaking him to Robin Samso. Former forestry firefighter Dana Crappa was a crucial witness for the prosecution. She had seen a man who might have been Alcala with a little girl who might have been Samso on the day that the child went missing. She had also found Robin Samso's dead body, but had failed to report it at the time. Crappa had been severely traumatized by her discovery, and that trauma showed when she was examined. The Los Angeles Times described her testifying in a quote-unquote halting voice and holding her head in a bowed position. The effects of the trauma also made her very vulnerable upon cross-examination. According to the Los Angeles Times, the 21-year-old forestry firefighter identified photographs of Alcala's car as the one she saw parked on a turnout when she slowed down to turn a sharp curve on the Santa Anita Canyon Road. Prior to being shown pictures of Alcala's car, she described its features in intricate detail. She said that one reason she had such a clear memory of the vehicle was that she had been thinking of buying a car of the same model. She also testified that the 1976 Datsun F-10 was striking because of the distinctive smoke-tinted rear windows and the luggage rack. She said that she saw a man and a child in the front of the car. She could not specifically identify either of them, but testified that the man was of medium build and had dark brown hair like Alcala, and that she believed that the child was female and was certain that the child had long blonde hair, as did Robin Samso. The article continued that Crappa testified that the following evening at 8.30 p.m., she again saw the same car on another turnout while driving up the road. She said she was able to see the car, although it was night, because she almost hit it when she swerved to miss colliding in with another car that had strayed into her lane. Later, Dana Crappa said that she had been in the foothills of the Sierra Madre Mountains on June 25th when she had made a grisly discovery. What did you see? Deputy District Attorney Rich Farnell asked. It was a body, Dana Crapper replied. What did you see about the body? Farnell queried. It was missing hands and feet, Crapper said. What else did you see? Farnell asked. Crapper says it was pretty cut up. She also went on to say that the head was separated from the rest of the body and it was bloated like when an animal gets to it and it sits for a while. However, Crappa continued that she did not report the gruesome find because she was in shock. The girl's death would not become known to authorities until the body was found by other forestry workers later on July 2nd. The Farnell returned to the subject of the man and child she had previously seen. 
Do you see the man who was pushing the little girl on June 20th into the courtroom? The prosecutor asked. Krappa said, I am not 100% positive, but the individual that looks like the one I saw is here. Farnell asks, where is he? Krappa's eyes had previously been focused down. She now raised them and said he is sitting next to Mr. Barnett. On cross-examination, Barnett pressed Krappa on how long she had seen the man she believes is Alcala, and she admitted that she had only had a brief look at him. She said as much on her direct examination, but the defense attorneys wanted to reinforce the fleeting nature that the look took to indicate the jury should give it a little weight. Barnett grew, basically drew from Krappa that the admissions that she had not been fully forthcoming in her initial interviews with investigators. For example, she had not told them that when first questioned about her finding the body, a Los Angeles Times article reports that she testified that she had failed to disclose the crucial information because of her inability to talk about discovering the body had formed a mental block. She admitted that she had been hedged that she had hedged telling the full truth because she was reluctant to testify in court about what she had seen. The prosecution also summoned Orange County jail inmates who had shared quarters with the accused on the stand. A Los Angeles Times article reports the inmates testified that Alcala acknowledged luring Robin into his car by offering to take her to her afternoon dance lessons. The article continues that one of those inmates, Michael Herrera, testified that Alcala told him that he placed the yellow bicycle she was riding in his car. When it became clear that Alcala was not driving her to her dance class, according to Herrera, Robin began to scream and reach for the door handle. Alcala then locked the door to the passenger side and repeatedly struck Robin about the face, Herrera said. Herrera claimed that Alcala later said that he deposited the bicycle behind a thrift store. A manager at an El Monte thrift store that stands between the area in which Robin's body was found and Alcala's Monterey Park residence testified that the yellow bicycle had been found behind the store building and later sold. When the defense began its case, it called Tim Fallon to the stand. Fallon testified to seeing Robin Samso in Huntington Beach the day after she was reported seen in the Sierra Madre foothills with her accused kidnapper and murderer, Rodney James Alcala. He believed that he had seen her on June 21st at about 4 p.m. riding a yellow bicycle down an alley. The defense also called Alcala's sister, Christine de la Cerda, to the stand. She testified that Alcala had been at her home from about 4.30 to 4.35 on June 20th, making it impossible for him to have been at the turnout on Santa Anita Canyon Road at 5.30, the time that Dana Crappa testified to seeing him as the man who resembled Alcala and a child looking like Robin Samso there. The Los Angeles Times article reported that after the five-minute interval in which Alcala was in Christina de la Cerda's home, her three children followed Alcala to his car and searched through his glove compartment for some gum. In closing arguments, Barnett said that prosecutors had proved that Mr. Alcala is a bad man, but had not proved that Mr. Alcala killed Robin Samso. Farnell asserted in the prosecution's closing that Alcala's defense does not mesh with common sense. And... Well, the jury agreed. On April 30th, 1980, the jury found Alcala guilty of the first-degree murder of Robin Samso. During the penalty phase, the defense attorney, Barnett, decried a lust for blood that pervades this courtroom. He described his client as a sexual misfit and nothing more. 
Barnett argued that the crime is sick. Every crime and every indication of misdeed in his past has been a product of unthinking passion. He also said, I'm not asking you to excuse Mr. Alcala from guilt, but I am arguing against his death. Prosecutor John Farnell countered the only appropriately only appropriate sentence in a case like this is death. The only question is whether death is sufficient for the defendant. Judge Schwab apparently thought that the prosecution's arguments were more persuasive, and he did, in fact, sentence uh, Rodney Alcala to death. Judge Schwab asserted, quote, it is fair to say that evidence discloses that the defendant in the premeditated manner stalked his prey for a number of days. The defendant not only has a prior felony conviction, referring to his child molestation conviction, but there is also distinct similarities to this case. This is a particularly vicious and cruel crime, end quote. Rejecting the defense's contention that Alcala's mental condition merited mercy, the judge said he is a man of depraved character, but he is able to appreciate the difference between right and wrong. As the norm in death penalty cases, Alcala's case was appealed, but John Barnett was no longer his attorney. The appeals were handled by attorneys Keith Monroe and David Zimmerman. Their efforts bore fruit on August 23rd of 1984 when the California State Supreme Court reversed Alcala's conviction on the grounds that jurors had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes. According to a Los Angeles Times article by Steve Tripoli, quote, prosecutors contended they were allowed to discuss the prior offenses under the laws that permitted the similarities between the crimes tend to identify as defendant as the culprit. The high court rejected the contention that the contention that the crimes were similar enough to be allowed into evidence. So in, layman in layman's terms, and to make a long story short, basically the only way that they could have talked about his other child rapes in the past is if the circumstances had been similar to what had happened with Robin Samso. The high court felt that they weren't similar enough in nature that the argument should have been allowed. So Rodney gets a second trial, and in June 1986, he is again convicted and again sentenced to death. Um, so, Rodney Alcala tried to write a book, and he was pinning a manuscript, and he argued his innocence and pointed to an ulterior suspect. He self-published the book entitled You, the Jury, in 1994. A petition was soon filed to prevent him from claiming any money, any money that the book might make, which, fantastic, he doesn't need to make any money. So, in September of 2005, Rodney Alcala was also indicted for four additional murders to which the authorities had linked him through blood, fingernail, fingerprint, and DNA evidence. Much of the DNA, DNA evidence had developed after 2002 when Alcala was forced to provide a DNA sample through the terms of his confinement in California State Prison. Those four were Jill Barcombe, 18, who's a, a woman from Oneida, New York, who had only been in California three weeks when her body was found bludgeoned and strangled in Los Angeles on November 10th of 1977. Georgia Wickstead, 27, a registered nurse whose nude body was found on December 16th, 1977 in her Malibu apartment, beaten, raped, and strangled. Legal secretary Charlotte Lamb, 32, strangled and found naked in the laundry room of an El Segundo apartment complex on June 24th, 1978. 
computer program key punch operator Jill Parento, 21, who was found strangled, nude, and propped up by pillows on the floor of her Burbank apartment in June 13, 1977. Alcala pled not guilty to all four of the new murder charges on November 22, 2005. Attorneys asked that he be tried separately on the Robin Samso murder. Prosecutors wanted all cases tried together. On June 24th of 2006, Superior Court Judge, Judge Francisco Brasino granted the prosecution the request to try the five cases together. An attorney, attorney who had previously represented Alcala, John P. Dolan, called the ruling a big victory for the prosecution. Dolan explains, if you're a juror and you hear one murder case, you might be able to have reasonable doubt. But it's very hard to say you have reasonable doubt on all five, especially when four of the five aren't alleged by eyewitnesses, but are proven by DNA matches. By the time the trial opened on February 2nd of 2010, Rodney Alcala had decided to act as his own attorney. No longer the handsome and seemingly debonair young man who appeared on the dating game, the lean-faced Alcala sported wavy gray hair flowing past his shoulders and a pair of horn-rimmed glasses. Soft-spoken and articulate, he began his opening statement by telling the jury that Robin Samso had been murdered about 10,820 days, 5 hours, and 15 minutes ago. About 33 days and 16 hours later, I was arrested. I have been incarcerated ever since. As he would go throughout the trial, Alcala essentially ignored the charges of murdering the other four adult women and particularly focused on the Samso murder charge. It was possible that he regarded this one as the most serious because of the girl's age. Um, scientists Kent A. Keel and Joshua W. Bocholtz have both studied psychopaths and concluded, quote, once fixed on a goal, psychopaths proceed it as if they can't get off the train until it reaches the station, quote, end quote. This narrowly focused full speed ahead tendency might have influenced Alcala to focus almost exclusively on the charges that he had been fighting for years and pay little attention to the new ones. In addressing the Samso accusations, Alcala projected a document on the screen before the jury that read six minute, 15 second window of opportunity. Alcala contended that this was a narrow time period of which Samso might have been kidnapped and promised that he would prove that he was at Knott's Berry Farm during the time. Alcala's performance as an attorney often seemed to lend credence to the old saying that, well, someone who represents himself has a fool for a client. In the early parts of the trial, while prosecutors attempted to tie Alcala to the slangs of the four Los Angeles County women, the defendant was almost absent. He asked very few questions. He only made a few objections. He waited until the prosecutor had finished interviewing one witness and then broke in quietly with a handful of objections to the testimony, unaware that it was too late. At one point, Alcala cross-examined Samso's mother, Marianne Connolly. The gold ball earrings found in Alcala's locker and believed to be worn by Samso at the time of her appearance were disappearance were a major piece of evidence in the prosecution's case. Alcala repeatedly asked questions designed to show that Robin Samso had not been wearing such jewelry on the day of her appearance. At one point, an obviously and understandably distressed cannot. Connolly report, retorted to her questioner, you know if she had the earrings on, don't you? Shortly after this exchange, the jury left the courtroom at the judge's request. 
Judge Brissineau spoke to Connolly, acknowledging that it would be inevitably difficult for her to take questions from the person that she feels responsible for taking a life. He continued that the defendant had the constitutional right to act as his own attorney and asked her to show patience in her conduct on the witness stand. To prove that he had the earrings before Robin Samso was murdered, Alcala played a 20-second clip from the Dating Game episode on which he appeared. The clip showed Alcala and Cheryl Bradshaw after the Bachelor number 1 had been picked and gone beyond the partition to meet the awaiting Bachelorette. Alcala's dark hair was shoulder length and his ears were not easily seen. However, Alcala told the jury you could spot the telltale earring if they really tried. You have to watch really closely when it plays because it's just a flash. Alcala made little effort to dispute the blood, DNA, or fingerprint evidence the prosecutors entered into evidence it's him pointing to him as the murderer of Jill Barcombe, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento. And after deliberating less than two days, the jury convicted Alcala on all five counts of first-degree murder. The jury sentence was far from the last word on the Rodney Alcala saga. Sure, he had been convicted of five murders, but his case is likely to drag on through a decade or more of appeals. There's also important questions that have not yet been answered. The most obvious is whether Alcala had more victims than the five that he's convicted of murdering. He is considered the prime suspect in the previously mentioned murder of Ellen Hover and is also a suspect in the rape and murder of Cornelia Crilly, 23, a flight attendant whose body was found in her Manhattan apartment on June 2nd of 1971. Authorities say his DNA matches DNA that was found in Crilly's apartment. However, New York law enforcement has stopped pursuing Alcala because of his status in California as a prisoner awaiting execution. Investigators released photographs from his telltale storage locker at home in hopes of identifying those pictures and learning if any of them are either missing or dead. Several have been identified as alive. As of writing and as of recording this, none have been connected to either a missing person's case or an unsolved murder. Questions that linger include the vexing issues of why. Why did Rodney Alcala, why did he rape and murder these women why did he rape and murder children but the truth is it is unlikely that he will ever tell us and it is quite possible that he doesn't know either okay guys that is the case on rodney alcala the dating game killer I came back to put in a caveat. It was something that I should have put at the end of it. And I don't know how it escaped my notes because sometimes I am a little frazzled, I guess, when I talk about these things. Um, but Rodney Alcala actually passed away on July 24th of this year while he was waiting execution on death row. So none of those appeals will ever happen. Um, and those pictures that were recovered from his storage locker are still available through... Um, the LAPD and the sheriff's office. I believe they had a website set up, but you can also, and I, I believe you can look at those pictures online. Those are still available to date. Again, they still have not found any um, pictures of anybody that is considered dead or missing, but there were a lot of photos. So if you or your family have a missing loved one that may have gone missing during that time and you're looking for answers, uh, this may be a way to get them. Certainly take a look at those pictures 
make sure that you don't know any of those women, don't know anyone that is missing who may have been murdered and Rodney Alcala may be the culprit. Obviously, we cannot bring a dead man to any more justice. And I highly doubt that he would have went to trial for anything else after being convicted of, of five murders. But it is certainly a wonderful thing for a family to get closure and at least know what happened to their family member. I thank you again, all of you, for hanging tough with me. I know this one was difficult. I tried very hard not to focus on the very gory bits of it so we could just kind of have a discussion about Rodney Alcala as a whole. So hopefully it wasn't too bad for you all. Um, I don't think I have anything to publicize or talk about really at the bottom of the show i just thank you guys all for listening um so the show is available anywhere that you like to listen to podcasts obviously um if you like the show please rate review and describe um and subscribe to it on apple Podcasts. Uh, please leave a five-star uh, rating and a review. I'd love to hear from you if you love the show if you hate the show let me do what let me know what i could do better um let me know if there's something you'd like me to talk about. Um, thank you guys for being so patient with me. After putting out that two-part episode, I was a little drained, not feeling so great. So I'm glad that I was able to kind of bounce back and give you this episode, albeit a little late. So to make up for that, um, I'm going to be putting out another episode. We're not going to talk about murder. We are going to talk about MLMs and we're going to talk about Lula Roe and the Amazon Prime documentary that is out right now, Lula Rich. Um, so I look forward to you hearing that as well. Uh, this episode uh, will be out and that one should be out shortly after. So once you hear this one, that one should also be up for you to listen to as well a couple of days after. Um, so again, just thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, you, If you would like to speak to me or if you would like to just talk to me about the episode while you're listening, you can tweet me. It's at MurderVPod um, or you can tweet me at VJ underscore Burton. Um, that is the same for both of those on Instagram. If you'd like to reach me there, a lot of times I just post show clips or random pictures of my dog. But again, I love hearing from you guys. So keep the comments and the love and the support coming. And again, please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, five stars. Let me know that you're listening. I love to find out that I'm getting new listeners and subscribers. And I'm so pleased that you guys are enjoying the content. So thank you again. Have a wonderful day, and this is Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V.